Howdy. You're listening to the Texas A&M RUF podcast. Hope you enjoyed the talk. Hey everyone, uh, howdy. 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 Welcome to RUF. My name is Austin McCann. I'm RUF campus minister here. Uh, We're really glad you're here. Tonight we are going to be reading our passage and I think this is going to take the cake as the longest passage we will read in RUF history. Okay, so we, I'm going to read it for us. All right, it's going to be first. Uh, Samuel chapter 17. If you have your Bibles, feel free to open there. Um, also, would somebody grab the lights for us real quick? Somebody mind doing that for us? Uh, that way you can see. Also, it's going to be behind the screen up here for me. So Julie's going to be running slides. she got a lot of slides to go through, but I'm going to read it for us. Um, and this is God's Word. So uh, sometimes you just got to do it. You have to go and read all of it. So we're going to do that. All right, this is 1 Samuel chapter 17, verses 1 through 58. This is God's word. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped at Soko and Azekah, and Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that, I may, that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, Next to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth uh, from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand, morning and evening. And Jesse said to his son, Take to your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to your camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See, in your brothers, see if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left with the sheep, with the keeper, and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment, and as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry, and Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage, and ran to the ranks, and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. 
All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David and said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know, your presum- I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward, toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went, I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off, and he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's pouch. His sling was in hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was a youth and ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the fields. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all his assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in, the, in his bag, took out a stone, and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank deep into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine, and took his sword, and drew it out of its sheath, and killed him, and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'aram as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp, 
And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem and put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as, da- as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him in before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word it remains forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you for your word. Lord, we thank you. Uh, this is a familiar story. I pray that you would uh, bring it to life, make it fresh to us. Not just the, in, for our enjoyment of the drama and the detail, but that Christ becomes fresh to us through this passage. Would you speak, Lord, before we listen? Amen. Um, look, that was long. Thanks for being with me. Okay. Uh, welcome to RUF, okay? Another semester of RUF. Uh, if you're, you weren't here last week and this is your first time to RUF, we're really glad you're here. We say this all the time, especially if you, you're here for the first time, that we really do believe that you're never so good that you stand outside the need of God's grace. While at the same time, you are never so bad that you stand outside the reach of His grace. We really do believe that here. We hope you taste and experience that when you interact with me and when you interact with this community. And you taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, and so, if you haven't been with us, it's a new semester, so we're starting a new series and this spring, we're making our way through the Old Testament and the books of First and Second Samuel to focus specifically on the life of this man and this king named David. And last week, we studied uh, in chapter 16 how God sees differently than mankind. That man is so ine- easily enamored with the outward appearance, but God looks at our hearts because that is what he is concerned with. That the choosing of an unlikely king like David last week was a living illustration of that truth. right? God is in the business of taking the world's values and flipping it on its head. And throughout this story, God leaves without a shadow of a doubt that salvation and redemption is not achieved through mankind's physical strength or his valor or his own righteousness, but instead, victory and salvation is achieved by God's strength, by his righteousness, by his power alone. And he proves himself to be the true warrior king tonight. Right? Even if you're unfamiliar with the Bible this evening, we're really glad you're here. We want you to bring your questions. Even if you're skeptical of the, of the truth claims of the Bible, we're glad you're here. We always want this to be a safe place. Um, but, but if you're unfamiliar with Scripture, you, I'm sure you have heard at some point the story of David and Goliath. Right? It's a running phrase, a, a common narrative which is popular And usually taken out of context when applied to sporting and competitive events, right? But there are many lessons in this chapter that we can learn from and that teach us. Many things that we can observe like fear and courage and reputation and mockery and faith and strength and weakness and victory. Right? And there's there's two ways to fall off the horse when studying a very popular story like this, okay? First is to completely ignore altogether the lessons that David does teach us and how we can actually follow as an example in this passage. That's the first way to fall off the horse. The second is actually to place such an unhealthy emphasis on David that we miss and downplay or forget that the true and main character of this story and the one who is at work is God himself. After all, the main focus of chapter 17 is not David's courage and faith. 
But it is on God's adequacy. It's on his victory in and through David's weaknesses. Let me say that again. The main focus of chapter 17 is not David's courage and faith. Well, it's nothing less than that. It is primarily focused on God's adequacy, on his victory through David's weaknesses. Um, And so there's three points today. If you're a note taker, here you go. All right. Three points. We're going to look at the lack of courage, right? The presence of faith and the victory of God, right? Lack of courage, presence of faith, victory of God. All right. First, the lack of courage, right? You, You don't have to get very far into our very long passage this evening before discovering the lack of courage and the fear that floods the hearts of the Israelites who are God's people. Right? If we're, we're all honest, if any character or characters should resonate with your heart most in this story, it is Saul and the Israelites. Right? Saul and the Israelite army are in narrative form a reflection of all of our hearts this evening. Okay, this little section we just read, right, in verses 1 through 11, it ends in verse 11. And here's the state of Saul and Israel. When Saul and Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Think about Saul and the Israelites' opposition, okay? Think about what characterizes Goliath and the Philistines to cause so much fear. You see that Israel's opposition, right, their enemy at this moment, was close in proximity. It had powerful strength, and it had fierce repetition. Proximity, strength, and repetition. That's what characterized Israel's enemy in this passage. Right first, we see the enemy, the opposition was very near. It was close in proximity. The passage tells us that the Philistines are gathered at Soko at Ezekah, and Ezekah, which is about 12 to 14 miles west of Bethlehem, the valley of Elah. Meaning that this powerful enemy that Israel is facing is not just somewhere out there, but it is now on their own turf. Right? It'd be like hearing a report that the enemy is not overseas, but it's actually down in Snook, about 13 miles away. That the opposition, the enemy that wants to kill them, is no longer just randomly out there. They're on their front doorstep. And secondly, what we see is that this opposition that Israel is facing is fiercely strong. Right? We see this in the description of Goliath, this Philistine champion. Right? And the writers want you to know just how big and how powerful this opposition was. And so they go into great detail about Goliath, right? He's over nine feet tall. He wore armor that weighed over 120 pounds. He had a head of spear that, or the head of his spear weighed over 15 pounds. And the details make it clear. Goliath is big, he's intimidating, and he's a powerful opponent. And he represents the opposition. And lastly is this, the opposition is relentless. Because for 40 days and 40 nights, Goliath would come out and shout out a challenge to Israel, asking someone to represent Israel to come down into the valley and actually battle with him to the death. It was a relentless, continual display of strength, of intimidation. Uh, I was in second grade when 9-11 happened. Um, I don't know how old y'all were. Maybe I don't know. I I was in second grade, and I'll never forget... uh, I don't know. Y'all are whispering. I don't know time is, doesn't work here. Um, but I'll never forget Miss Parker, okay, telling me to go down to the fifth grade hall to tell Miss Harris to turn on the TV. And it's already, like, terrifying enough as a second grader to go into the fifth grade hall. That's, like, one of the scariest things ever. Uh, talk about a Goliath, right? Like, but 
But I do remember like going to Miss Mrs. Harris's room and telling her like Miss Harris like turn on the TV. Miss Parker told me, and uh, and I'll never forget the fear and really the panic and the confusion when she turned it on and like looking at her face. And then obviously like going home and leaving like class early that day and and watching TV. And I was young and I was trying to understand this, but I, I did catch all of the confusion and the panic that was not only in my parents and in our families and even in our communities, but also in the nation. Because terrorism had always existed, right? But what changed that morning was that it wasn't something that was just out there. It was now here on our turf. Right? Scripture describes our enemies as external, okay? We will have worldly enemies, and Satan is a deceiver, an accuser, and Scripture goes into great detail in describing and telling us about him and worldly powers. While at the same time, Scripture also describes an internal enemy that in all of us is true. Is that there is one that is much closer, that is much stronger and relentless, which is the sin that rests in every human's heart. See, our lack of courage gets revealed when the opposition, when evil, is is not just out there, sporadic and weak, but when it is actually upon you. When it's the sin that is actually within you, relentlessly at your door, morning and evening. Right? A lot of the time, we tend to diminish our own sin, which is near and which is strong and relentless, convincing ourselves that actually the real problem is just outside of us. It's out there, which Scripture does attest to. That's true. There are there are there is evil outside of you. Right? But it's easy to say. Like, I'm going to be someone who tells the truth or who sticks up for people. But then when it's actually upon you, when, when that guy is being torn down, or when gossip is flying around, or when you have an exam coming up and all you want to do is just, just absolutely tear down your professor, right? or we embellish a story for a laugh, or we cut someone down to make ourselves look better, and we just blame it on our humor, we, our hearts are just naturally bent, like Saul and the Israelites. Like, it, it's easy to become a defender of sexual purity during the day in front of your friends. It's easy to show resolve to fight sexual sin when you're with your friends and around people. It's easy to display bravado. But what happens when you're alone with the computer or your phone at night? When sin is upon you in a relentless onslaught that comes from your own heart. Right? right? It, we know that it's easy to talk about forgiveness. And how we need to learn to get along and forgive each other. But what about when that person that you really love actually hurts you? What comes out of you? Is it courageous forgiveness? Or bitterness that says everyone is toxic and I'm just done with people? But do you roll over in your head the things that she said about you or the things that he did to you? Or do you try and fight it with forgiveness? That's the battle that actually wages within. You see, the true state of our hearts gets revealed when we face opposition that is big and that is powerful and that is relentless and near. And the Philistines and Goliath are in narrative form a picture of Satan and sin and worldliness. The rebellion most emphasized within our hearts and in our face that reveals that we are in desperate need of a true king. A warrior king, someone who has fought in our place, and someone who will fight on our behalf, and someone who has enabled us to also fight with courage.
So that, this leads us to our next point, okay? If that is the lack of courage, and that's the enemy that we face, then comes in the presence of faith in verses 12 through 30, okay? Because in verse 11, you get this sense that Saul and the Israelites are frantically searching for the panic button. But then we get some literary relief with the calming words in verse 12. Now David. And we learn David is still keeping his father's sheep going back and forth between Saul and his father. And finally, after spending some time in that, after finally obeying his father, David makes it to the front lines and he hears, finally, the mockery of Goliath. And the Israelites are unwilling to recognize it, but the true king is actually in their midst. And up to this point in verse 26, the story has been godless. Up to verse 26, God is not mentioned. He doesn't come up. You don't see his name. There's no mention or thought of him. And what's fascinating is some of the first words that we hear from David's mouth, this unlikely king that we met last week. Some of the first words that we hear from his mouth is this. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? In other words, David is looking around at the Israelites and at Saul and injecting this godly question. Doesn't having a living God make a difference in all of this? Here we witness David being the first one actually exercising faith. Not in the quality or the quantity of his own faith, but he is displaying his hope and trust in the object of his faith, the living God in the face of danger. But this question, it doesn't strike down Goliath or solve everyone's problem. But what David teaches us is that this is a crucial starting point when facing any trial or problem or uncertain situation in our life. That if someone could hear your thoughts and your words when you are stressed or confused or uncertain or tired or facing trouble, would they ever guess that you believe in a living God? If someone could hear your thoughts and your words, when you're stressed, when you're confused, when you're tired, would they ever guess that you believe that there is a God who is alive? And what David does is actually gives us an example of why theology matters. <laughs> and I'll be the first to confess that when something doesn't go my way, or when the future is confusing and uncertain, or when something is out of control in my life, or when my, my kids feel like an obstacle to my work, like, my first response is to complain and grumble. My first response is to be drenched in anxiety and worry. Not, God, I believe that you're alive, <laughs> that you're sovereign and in control, that your grace is more sufficient for me than I can imagine, that you are more near and relentless and stronger than any of my own circumstances and even my own sin. Right? When people come to Aggie UF, when they're observing your conversations in the way that you actually care for one another and respond in the way that you, you hurt one another and how you forgive one another, would people say when they interact with this group on Pitt campus, would they say, that is a group of people that believe and trust in a living God? Are we a preview to the watching world that we believe 
and, and a God that is alive, and that His truth and His grace are actually central to our lives. That's where David begins. Because what we witness in our passage is that's true for David. He believed that God was alive. And this seemingly small starting point and question that he asks, it leads to the evidence of his faith in every interaction that he has until he, until he actually takes down Goliath. Right? First with his brother Eliab, then with Saul, and finally with, with Goliath himself in battle. Actually, it's been said that David actually faces three Goliaths in this story. First, he faces his brother Eliab in the contempt of Goliath, in the rebuke of David. Second, he faces Saul, the mind of Goliath. Only the experienced and the equipped warrior will win. There's no way you can win, David. And finally, the carcass of Goliath himself. In all three of these interactions, David's faith is present by placing his trust not only in a God who is alive, but also in a God in whom he believes will deliver him. Right In his conversation with Saul, he says this. Saul tells David, he says in verse 33, David, you're too inexperienced, and Goliath is a professional. And how does David reply? He said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. You see what David is doing? He's looking back in faith. Looking back in faith is actually enabling him to look forward in faith. David is saying what God has done in the wilderness of Judah, he will do in the valley of Elah. This is the logic that he is exercising. Dale Ralph Davis, who's actually wonderful and he's helped a lot tonight, but he said this, that faith is sustained in the present and for the present as it remembers God's provision in the past. Let me say that again. Faith is sustained in the present and for the present as it remembers God's provision in the past. Right, to illustrate this, uh, like, faith here, at least applicable to me, probably applicable to y'all. Faith, in fact, is trusting that if I was driving down University, okay, and I turn right onto Texas Avenue, I can trust that I have a lane. So I don't have to stop turning, stop before turning off of University onto Texas Avenue. We've all done it. <laughs> but, yeah, right? You have a lane, right? Like, the lane, it's going to deliver you every time. You can keep going. And I have to confess, there's a couple times that I've stopped and I felt like an idiot. But, but like, it's that, you've done it too. Right back at you. Uh, but, right? You see, the, the source of David's deliverance, okay, it's not in his skill or his performance or how many people follow him on Instagram. Or how high his GPA is. Or how many orgs he's involved in on campus. Or how important he thinks he may be in those orgs on campus. David's deliverance is not that he, is a, he has true grit. But it's because he knows the true God. Who's been faithful in the past. And he will be faithful again in the present. How often do we forget that? <laughs> All the time. We have a lane. David trusts not only in a God who is alive, but he also trusts in a God who is delivering him. Okay, and this leads us to our last point, the victory of God. Because in verses 41 through 58, we come to the battle, right? The crescendo. 
right? And what's beautiful to me here is that what catches David's attention in verse 45 is not his own reputation or trying to protect his own reputation. It's not justifying his actions and claiming victory for himself. What captures David's attention is the thought of God's reputation and his honor being smeared. With everything David could have been concerned with, this is what is most important to him. That the reputation, the glory of his God is to be upheld. That's what's most important. Like, it's worth asking tonight, like, what bothers you? Right, like, like what really gets under your skin? I googled the top, like, common pet peeves. Loud slurping and chewing. Like, people who cut in line. Talking during movies. The comment, you look tired. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a- airplane seat recliners. When a water bottle falls in the back of your car and you can't reach it while you're driving and you turn and it's rolling in the back. Right? Texas fans. Um, like, not signing up for Wario Winter Conference. Right? The list could go on and on. Okay? It's worth asking yourself tonight. What bothers you? There's a lot that bothers me. A lot of small things in my life bother me. You want to know one of the way, one, one ways that you have the true king? Is that what bothers you is not the loss of reputation. What bothers you is not the loss of things of this world. It's not merely the concern of what you do after graduation, or how much money you will make, or who you are going to marry. Important things. You know you have the true king when what bothers you And what bothers you most is that anyone or anything would actually dishonor the glory of King Jesus. Even yourself and your own sin. You know you have the true king when when what bothers you most is that anyone or anything would dishonor the glory of your King Jesus. Even yourself and your own sin. This is a sign of true godliness. This is what David cares about. You see, what's perplexing is that if God is all-powerful, and if he did write this story, and if he wants his reputation upheld, why would he send someone so weak? Why send a royal runt with a staff and stones as your warrior king? Eliab tells him you're a pain. Saul tells him that you're too inexperienced. Goliath tells him you're too puny. And that's exactly the point. David's defeat of Goliath is a foretaste of the way that God works and of God's greater deliverance. David stresses to Goliath that God saves not by the instruments of human power, but through the weakness of his servants. David stresses that God saves not by the instruments of human power, but through the weakness of his servants. God saves not by swords or spears, but by a stone and a sling. And one day he would save by wood and nails. And as our warrior king, God sends David's greater son, King Jesus, who walks alone into the valley, who stands between us and evil on our behalf, not only without armor, but without anything. He has no weapons, and more foolish than a sling is that his weapon is a wooden cross. 
He's mocked, he's beaten, and he's ashamed. And the greatest show of strength that day is that he stayed on the cross. But the beauty of, of this story, and what we'll learn again and again and again, is that three days later, this warrior king becomes a victorious king. Because our God is a living God. He resurrects His Son. And the battle is won. And the giant of death has been defeated. That is true. And just as the Israelites receive all the spoils and the glory of David's victory, so do you and I tonight that if you trust in King Jesus, who is alive and who has delivered you from your sins, you receive the victorious and immeasurable love of the Father forever. That's an invitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this undying truth that you are alive. Lord, we cry out, help our belief, but we also cry out tonight, help our unbelief. Lord, there's no doubt that all of us in here have faced trials and pain and trauma and hurt in the past. We either are facing that right now, or one day we will face that. And Father, I pray that we would trust that as you delivered David... As you delivered your son Jesus, you promised to deliver your children. Help us to believe that we are united in Christ. And that his victory is our victory. The benefits of all redemption is now our benefits. The battle is won, therefore the battle is won for us. So Father, would you help us to believe that? That you work and you display your power through our weaknesses. But we thank you that we serve a God who is alive and who promises to deliver us. Help us to believe that. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of the Texas A&M RUF podcast. If you're interested in joining us for a large group, we would love to see you at All Faiths Chapel on the north side of campus across from Sabisa at 8 p.m. on Wednesdays. Go ahead and follow at AggieRUF on Instagram for updates about any other events we're putting on. We hope to see you around. Thanks and gig em.